I worship in a lot of different places, uh, in many different states and uh, different countries and whatnot, and, and hardly ever does it sound that way. So we're thankful for the excellence that God has imparted to us in the music here. Uh, so we're, we're thankful to God for that. I'm Noah Joyner. Uh, I'm a missionary uh, to Haiti. Uh, I work with Haitians both in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti. My wife and I live there part of the year and live here part of the year. And so um, I have been commissioned uh, by Larry to speak to you concerning what the love of God has to do with our loving obedience to him through loving others. And so if you will pray for me uh, as I preach, I will pray for you as you listen, and let us go to God now and pray that he would meet with us in this time as we look into his word. So Father, we do pray. We ask that you would be with us. We ask that we would hear you, that you would meet with us, you would come alongside of us, though our weeks have been disheveled, unexpected things have happened, and we've come into this place rushed. I pray that you would slow our hearts down, quiet our minds, quiet our souls, that we might hear you speak to us about your grand and great love for us, and that we might hear you speak to us about how we should love others in this place and outside of this place. We come to you with great anticipation, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Apostle John is thoroughly concerned with the question uh, of how do we lovingly obey God through loving others. Uh, His ministry, uh, especially the, the book of 1 John, can easily be called loving obedience to a loving God. Uh, great concern for the Apostle John in, in his short little letters to his friends about loving God and loving obedience as we love others. And so to that end, Larry uh, preached from 1 John chapter 3 two weeks ago, and this week I'll be teaching from 1 John chapter 4. So as you turn there in your Bibles, let me take a moment to remind you of how all that we've studied in the book of Deuteronomy Larry's teaching in uh, 1 John 3, and then also our teaching last week about how God has loved us in creation. Let me uh, remind you of how all of that fits together. It's really important to remember that as we read and learn the Bible, that it all does fit together. Often we speak of the Bible as a single story, but for our purposes this morning, I want to refer to it as a single song with four parts. First, the introduction, representative of creation, grand, dynamic, and layered. Think of the most beautiful song you've ever heard. Multiple instruments working seamlessly together to paint a larger picture, a picture larger than you could even imagine. An unexplainable moving piece that quickens the heart. This is where Larry's message of God's love for us as shown in creation would fit from last week. God has lovingly lovingly constructed a universe that proclaims his greatness to his own creation. Then a plot change in our song. The epic song moves from bright and triumphant to dark and out of tune. Intimidating and fearful. Confusing and broken. But throughout the noise we get hints of hope. This section is representative of the fall of man through disobedience to his creator. Though disheartening, it is not helpless. You see, in love, God promised to send a rescuer to put all things right. And this is where the book of Deuteronomy fits in. Dark and confusing in many places, 
with clear promises that a greater prophet is coming. A rescuer is coming. The song then becomes quiet, leading to a building melody of anticipation. As the tune builds in hope and joy, it darkens, only to give way to a victorious blast of horns and strings and drums. This part is representative of the perfect life, atoning death, and powerful raising of the rescuer, Jesus. Here we see the promise, the promise-keeping love of God to rescue those who have rebelled against him. He's kept his promise. He's sent a rescuer. Then we hear a familiar reprise in the song. The sounds of creation, large and epic, play behind a tune busy with the sounds of repair. These two melodies meld together into one grand, perfect, unending chorus of praise, sung by all peoples for all time. A song to their rescuer. Here we see God by the Spirit making all things new, gathering his people together with him forever. This is the song that God is writing, this is the story that God is writing. And as we find our way to 1 John 4, we will see that John is calling his dear children in the faith to live in the reality that God is making all things new, even them. And they should live like it. He is going to hold up love as the great mark of the Christian because it is the motivating character of God in relationship to his people. The Apostle John says it like this in chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John's point is simple. Those who call Jesus Lord should love one another, since love is from God. Furthermore, the way that you know that you are a child of God is by being loving. His logic goes like this. Love is from God. So if you know God, then you will be loving. Or, how could God's kid not act like him? My aunt passed away earlier this week, and I was able to speak at her funeral. And while we were there uh, with family, I was able to see the similarities between my aunt and her daughters, um, and and my uncle and his sons. And uh, one of my favorite things this week... um, is spending time with my dad and my brothers. Uh, we all rode up to the funeral together. It, was, it really wasn't enjoyable. It was a lot of fun. Um, and so in my family, we kind of like to pick on each other. And so we were riding, and I said to my brother Merle, he's sitting back here with me, I said, watch this. And I, I explained to him that when my dad and my brother Matt eat chicken, when they wipe their hands when they're done, they do it exactly the same way. It's really strange. And they said, watch this. And we just died laughing. Because they do it exactly the same way. He never taught anyone to do that. My dad never taught Matt to do that. He just does it because he's his kid. My wife and I, when we first got married, we were going to sleep and I was laying there and she said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? She said, your feet, you're rubbing your feet together. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? No, I'm not. And I realized I'm rubbing my feet together. And I'd never noticed that before. Well, little did I know, uh, I rub my feet together when I go to sleep probably as some comfort measure. But what I realized later on, uh, probably about 
a year later is that my dad does the same thing. And he told me that his dad did the same thing. Well, all of my children, my three boys, they all do it. And I never taught them to do that. And my dad never taught me to do it. And his dad never taught him. But I'm like my dad. Because he's my dad and I'm his son. And so this is the logic that the Apostle John is using to talk about how we should be loving like our father. And so he continues in verse 8. And this time he puts a a negative spin on it. In verse 8 he says this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So he kind of used positive terms before. Now he's using negative terms. John makes it a little clearer. If you are not marked by love as a key and growing characteristic of your life, then you do not know God because God is love. This is the very heart of loving obedience to a loving God. If you don't know the God of love, you will not lovingly obey him by loving others. In the last decade of Christian ministry, I've encountered countless men and women who have done the church thing and kept some rules but have no desire to lovingly obey God because they did not know the author of love. So they could not imitate him. If you find yourself in that place today, it is my prayer that you will encounter this morning, encounter the God of undying love. The love of God is incalculable. So how is it that we should understand God both being love and love coming from God? Pastor and author John Piper, he says it this way. When John says that love is from God, he doesn't mean it's from him the way letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. He means that love is from God the way heat is from a fire or the way that light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what or who he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light, and fire gives heat because it is heat. If we know God, we will be warmed by the fire of his love. We will see by the light of his love. We will be marked by it. We will be changed by it. We will experience it, and it will take its effect on us in such a way that we will then love. All that John has said thus far begs the question then, what is love? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. In her 80s anthem posing the question, what's love got to do with it? Tina Turner insists that love is a secondhand emotion or a sweet old-fashioned notion. (laughs) She insists that it's simply a feeling or a flexible social construct. In her view, it's an inconsequential thing to be ignored. On the other hand, one might insist that love is a verb, as we heard from the pen of John Mayer this morning. He says you got to show, 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 show me love. In his view, love is all about what you do externally or how you act. He says, I don't need your words when you show me love. I have an amen and, a, and an objection to that. He's partially right and very wrong all at once. 
So if we were to ask God, the great songwriter, the great love songwriter, what would he say? In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, he says this, through the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesians, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, which... uh, the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." So verses 1 through 3 explain man, his character, and his actions. So man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and he follows Satan and the patterns of this world and his own fleshly desires. Verse 4 and 5 explain, and the rest of the chapter explain, God, his character, and his actions. And in verse 4, something Very interesting is happening here. You see the word love is used as a noun and a verb. So it says, with the great love with which he loved us. So the Apostle Paul is doing a play here to understand that it's a thing, but it's also an action. So it'd be kind of like saying, with the the great comb with which he combed us. Now it's kind of a, a silly way to get at the point. But the point stands that love is a thing that is shown to be great in its working. Its greatness is in its action. The greatness of the God of love is shown in his love of sinners. Love is a character that comes to life in relationship. The great love with which he loved us. You see, God is love. And he created you to love you. You rebelled, and he loved you still. His love would not be impeded by the fact that you did not love him. His love is not impeded by your unloveliness. So in spite of your unloveliness, he loved you. Back in 1 John 4, we see the same principle. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The love of God for his people and his world came in the flesh and stood among us. It hung among us. He lived like we live. He dwelled with us. God's character compelled him to act in love, and his love showed up with Jesus He saw our need for a rescuer, and at cost to himself, he sent his own son to give us life. In verse 9, John draws a sketch of what the love of God is. And then in verse 10, he, he colors it in with scarlet hues. He says this in verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
he gets a little more specific in this verse about what the love of God looks like. But I want to highlight three parallels that John lays out in verses 9 and 10 for the the point of repetition to, to help you to understand and to see that you don't miss these points. So, number one, God's love compelled him to send Jesus. We see that in verse 9. He sent his only son into the world. And then, verse 10, he sent his son to be. So the idea is that he's sending his son. So love goes. It's a sent love. It's a love. uh, Love has a mission or a purpose. And it acts on that mission or purpose. Second, God in love sent Jesus into a world full of people who did not love him. We said that in verse 9, it says, into the world. And one commentator has pointed out that the word world, in some sense, is personified as the great opponent of the Redeemer in salvation history. So when you see the word world, think that which is opposed to the rescuer. So God sent the rescuer into that, into that opposition. And then verse 10, we see also, that Jesus was sent to a world full of people that did not love him when it says not that we have loved God. And then lastly, God in love sent Jesus to address a rebellious man's deepest need. He sent him to address the need that is so tied to our being that we cannot escape it. We see that in verse 9. It says that we may live, Jesus was sent. That's why God sent him, that we may live. Well, that assumes that we were dead, as we saw in Ephesians 2, verse 1. That all people are dead in their trespasses and sins. Then it also says that he sent him to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a a big fancy word, and some of your Bibles will have it, and some of them don't. Uh, it, it occurs a handful of times in uh, the New Testament, twice in the book of John. Uh, John finds this word very important. And you should also. Uh, an understanding of the word propitiation, I think, will color in, as John is trying to do, color in the sketch of God's love that you have with scarlet hues. Many of us have a, a sketch in our mind, a black and white sketch of what the love of God may be. But as we understand this word propitiation and the notion I believe that it comes to life. I had that own experience Um, as a Christian when I began to understand substitutionary atonement and and the idea of propitiation, the love of God, God's care for me and God's work on my behalf came to life in color in a way that it hadn't before. And so uh, there's a fantastic book called The Gospel for Real Life. If you're a reader, you need to pick this book up. It's by a guy named Jerry Bridges. If you're not a reader, you need to pick this book up. It's by a guy named Jerry Bridges. And it's called The Gospel for Real Life. And he has a short little section on the word propitiation, and it's very helpful. Um, And he says this. He says, I believe a word that forcefully captures the essence of Jesus' work of propitiation is the word exhausted. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. It was not merely a deflection. And prevented from reaching us, it was exhausted. Jesus bore the full, unmitigated brunt of it. God's wrath against sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. He held nothing back. You see, Jesus hung in the place of sinners, receiving the punishment you were due, all of you, including me. 
That's what propitiation is. It's a loving substitute that exhausts the perfect, just wrath of God over sin for disobedient men and women. It's a bloody, hard word, but it's important that we have it in our vocabulary that we might worship God in the way that he intended. So based on what John says here, what is love? I want to give you a definition. If you're a note-taker type, you might want to write this down. Love is a compulsion of deep character that goes to people who are not lovely, meeting their greatest need at personal sacrifice or loss. So what I tried to do is to take these three things that I saw in verses 9 and 10 and come up with a definition that if I were to ask John, what do you mean by love? He would say this, a compulsion of deep character that goes to people who are not lovely, meeting their greatest need at personal sacrifice or loss. You see, when God calls you to love others with a strange and radical love, he is not asking you to do something he has not done. He is simply saying, be like me. Since you are my kid, be like me. Since I love you, love others like I love you. So what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with obedience? Everything. God's love is the prototype and fuel for the vehicle of of love that he is calling you to drive. It's the pattern and the power of love. If you do not know him, if you do not walk with him, if you do not call on him, you will not love this way. And if you are not loving this way, it's because you are not depending on him and calling on him and asking him to show you and make you a lover like this. In verse 11, he, reiter- he reiterates this point. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what does it mean to love one another? He means love believers, those who have God as their father. How can brothers and sisters, so loved by God, their father, not love one another? It defies all logic. Northwake, you do this well. But do not grow weary and tired. We can grow here. We can grow in this. So I have a series of questions that I want to ask you to to prompt growth in this area. How could you love others better? What would it look like for you to love? What would a a compulsion of deep character that goes to people who are not lovely, meeting their greatest need at personal sacrifice or loss, what would that look like for you? Who is the least lovely person in this church in your estimation? Don't answer out loud. (laughs) How could you lovingly go to them to help meet their needs? What would sacrifice be for you? What would loss, personal loss, what would that look like for you? There are people here that you need to forgive out of love. And there are people here that you need to seek forgiveness from out of love. And there are people here that you need to serve out of love. 
Maybe you've not realized the love of God in your life. So all of these suggestions are, are, are terrifying to you. And maybe you have experienced God's love and living like this terrifies you still. In love, you must love others. If you keep reading in the passage, you'll see uh, down at the bottom it says that perfect love casts out all fear. This is what God wants to do in you is to cast out the fear that rises up in you when you think about loving people this way. Perfect love casts out that fear. Beloved, let us love one another. I want to highlight a couple of stories in my own life of love that I've received in the last 12 years at this church. I've been a believer for about a year. We were still meeting over next door, and um, I was living a, uh, a rebellious Christian life. Uh, I was still hanging on to those things that uh, hinder my race uh, with Christ. I was hanging on to sin, and uh, I, it had taken its toll on me, and I was really at a place where I was considering not continuing to be a believer. I was kind of at that place where, like, am I going to keep doing this or not? And so I was next door, and I had come to church with my mom, and uh, a guy came up to me, one of the elders at the church, came up to me. Uh, I didn't know him. I didn't know who he was. He came up to me and said, he looked me in the eyes. He said, hey, how are you? And it wasn't like, hey, how you doing? It was like, no, how are you? And God used that to just bust open the doors of my heart. And to tell him, you know, I'm not doing so good. Um, I'm walking in sin in a way that doesn't please God, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do about it. And he was able to minister to me because he was willing to step out, to put off the fear of being rejected or mocked or whatever, and just ask me how I was doing. And God really used that. Uh, that was a real turning point in my life where I drove deeper into this fellowship rather than uh, fleeing from it. Another one, uh, my wife and I, we're in the hospital for a couple of months with um, my youngest son. And we had been there about two weeks, and things were just getting worse by the moment. Um, he couldn't come off life support, and we weren't sure why. And that same day, there was a, a, a pipe burst in the ceiling, and like water came pouring into his hospital room. And it was like from bad to worse, which is terrible. But a, a brother from this church, he came and visited my wife and I. He, he didn't stay for more than an hour, but he came and he sat with my wife and I and just listened. But the most loving part of this is that he, he had lost a child a couple of years before. And though it was painful for him, he ministered to me. At great sacrifice, he ministered to me. So that's love. That's how you love one another. You do the thing that's hard, even though you don't want to. You do the thing that you know Jesus would do were he in the same situation. And I believe that's exactly what he would have done. God really used that to encourage and strengthen my wife and I for that time, and I look back on that with fondness. Um, I've never thanked him for that, but I'm very thankful. So why should we love like this? Because God has loved us. Because we know God. Because we have stood next to the fire, and we've seen the light of love. We have experienced him in this way, and therefore, we should love one another like this. 
It would be tempting to conclude our message here. But this would not be the full song. Remember God's song of love, restoration, and rescue is for all peoples, the whole world. This song was written for every sinner to hear. We saw this back in verse 9 when it said that Jesus was sent into the world for the whole thing, the whole messed up thing. Jesus was sent into it. This notion is clearly seen in uh, 1 John 2.2 when it says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Whether this means that Christ died for all types of people or for every individual, the point stands. God is engaged in global work of redeeming sinners, as we should be, all peoples, the whole world. This should be our target and our goal of love, is to love all peoples everywhere. John in his gospel shows how our love for one another in this body corresponds with God's rescue plan around the world and next door. If you look in John 17, verses 18 through 23, you see this. You sent me into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, our unity should reflect that of the unity of the Father and the Son. A loving indivisibility. As we live this way, it will prove to the world that Jesus was sent from God. You don't have to spend much time talking with unbelievers to learn that disunity among God's people leads them to believe that Christianity is not true. When I share a gospel with people, I hear this 50% of the time, if not more. At least half of the people I talk to about the gospel who say they don't want to follow Jesus say, look at the church. You guys fight all the time. You can't agree on simple things. Therefore, Christianity must not be true. Jesus is praying knowing that this would happen. He's praying for you and me and the apostles and saying, look, put them together and give them unity like we are unified so that people can see that you sent me. Likewise, you don't have to spend much time talking to Christians to learn that a loving church is what led them to Christ. Many of you could stand up here today and say, the love of this church or another church somewhere else led me into, opened me up to, and encouraged me into a relationship with Jesus. This is how it works. When this, bit, when this body loves one another the way that it should, Jesus as shown as the Son of God. A loving imitation of our Father means that our character compels us to go, meeting the deepest needs of the unloving that we are among at great personal sacrifice. Another line of questions for you to, to press on you and to test yourself and to, to draw you out with. Do you have the loving character of your father, your father in heaven? 
If not, are you willing to seek it out? Who do you need to go to? What is their deepest need and how will you address it? What will you have to sacrifice? If we want to imitate our Father in heaven, we must wrestle with questions like these. As my wife and I have wrestled with these questions, we've concluded that we should live part of the year in the Dominican Republic, living among Haitians. So we will live there half the year, leaving behind the deep fellowship that we have here, leaving behind family and friends. And, and that's hard. You know, being gone, being in a church like this for 12 years and then leaving a church like this for any amount of time, it's very hard. You know, as we pray for our missionaries, they leave so much behind. I mean, think about the Saxons, even being gone for three years, being in a fellowship like this, being in a small group, having friends, uh, loving what we do here, and being put in a place where they don't have that. That's a great loss to them. So they leave that fellowship that they enjoy greatly for the benefit of another. And as we do that, we are, have a small imitation, a small experience of Christ leaving heaven, leaving that unity and relationship with his Father face-to-face, leaving that for the good of another, putting that off that someone else would be the beneficiary. In doing this, we get to be a little like our fathers, a little like Christ. And as he left his heavenly home to go to a lovely people, we get to do a similar thing. Most of the people that I get to work with in Haiti and the Dominican, most of the Haitians I work with are great people. But sometimes they're not. And sometimes they reject you. And sometimes they scorn you. And sometimes uh, they're a bit unlovely. As I was in uh, the Dominican this summer, we were going house to house sharing the gospel with really whoever we could see. And the way that we do this is we just go around asking people if we can pray for them. Uh, and that really usually opens the door to whatever type of discussions they want to have and uh, tells us a lot about what they believe. And so as we were doing that, I saw three, four guys sitting under a tree, three or four Haitian guys sitting under a tree. And uh, one of them was sitting like this on a chair backwards. And, and he was clearly not into what we were doing. Uh, he did not want the missionaries to come and talk to him. So I walked toward him. And as I walk up to him, he says, looks me right in the face and says, I'm hungry. And in a, in a situation like that, you're confronted with something. What do I do here? Because it very well may be that he's hungry. But what is he asking me for? He's not asking me for the thing that he needs most. And so I looked at him. I said, look, friend, I could reach in my pocket. I could give you 200 pesos, $5. And you could go, and you could have a meal, and you'd be full until the evening, and it'd be gone. But what I want to do is I want to offer to you something that will satisfy and fill your soul in such a way that you will never hunger again. He sat up in his seat, and he was a little more attent, a little more attentive. And so I kneeled down in front of him, eye to eye, and I spoke to him, and I explained to him, that he was dead in his trespasses and sins and that the wrath of God was coming on him and that he needed a substitute. He needed someone to stand in his place, that he wouldn't suffer under the wrath of God for all eternity. And as I told him that, his face fell with conviction. And it was clear to him that he 
believed exactly what I was saying. He knew that that was true. And after about 20 minutes, uh, he said, I want to follow Jesus. And so I said, ho, 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 wait, wait. Are you sure you want to do that? He says, yeah. And I said, well, if you do that, then these guys that you're sitting here with under this tree, they're not going to want to hang out with you anymore. I said, this is hard. Following Jesus means that you're choosing a harder life. And he said, okay. And I said, do you want to follow Jesus? He says, yes. I said, why do you want to follow Jesus? Just to, to check what is his motivation. He said, because I love him. How could I not follow him? This man in a single conversation had gone from a hater of God to a lover of God. And this is what God is doing through the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. This is the story that God is telling. The song that he's singing is taking sinners from those who hate God to being his children. As Larry reminded us of two weeks ago, being adopted into his family. I'd ask you to pray for this guy. His name's Shilur. My hope is that uh, when I go back and visit him next time, um, that you know, we were doing evangelism with a pastor, we were able to connect him with that pastor. My hope is that he's uh, eight months into some intense discipleship and ready to go out with us and share the gospel. Pray for him. Who's your Shilur? Who needs to hear of God's love and provision in Christ from you? Who's the guy that's sitting and waiting for you to come and speak with him, to tell him what he needs? Who's the kid in your school that you need to speak with? Which neighbor is God pointing out to you? Which family member should you call today before the sun goes down? Which of your kids should you sit down and tell them of how God saved you? How should you reach out to that waitress at lunch today after church? How can you best love your coworkers like God loves you in Christ? As we love in word and in deed, God will bring about the salvation of sinners in Wake Forest, in Haiti, in India, in Mexico, in China, and throughout the world. I got an email from Greg Bowers this morning talking about the great work that God is doing in and through these missionaries that we've sent from our church in places like China, Thailand. Man, what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful song that they get to join in and be a part of. And God's calling us to sing that song, for that to be our song. So how does the song end? Well, it doesn't end, but it has a final part, and it goes something like this. In Revelation 5, 9 uh, through 14, we see a grand crowd, and they're gathered around God's throne, and they're singing a song, praising God for his redemption of sinners, his buying of sinners back to him from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and people. We see that he is worthy to receive honor and power and glory and dominion because of that work. The song that God is writing 
is for the loving good of sinners like us to the glory of his son. That's our song and that's the song that we sing. So beloved, let us love one another as God has loved us that the world may know that Jesus was sent by God to save needy sinners. As the worship team comes, I want you to reflect on how is it that you will love? You, there's something you have to do about this. No one gets away in a sermon like this. No one gets away from 1 John. We all have places where we're not loving the people in our home like Jesus would, the people in this church like Jesus would, and the people in our community like Jesus would, or in other nations like Jesus would. And so here's the deal. As this song as we sing, as we thank God for what he's done, pray that he would lead you in clarity, that he would show you what it is that you will do today and the next day and the day after to live in love like he does. And that's my prayer for you. Father, we pray that as you sent Jesus, that you would send us with mission and purpose and that you would empower us. You would let us love others that you might be shown as great and loving. And we praise you for the love you have shown us in Christ. We ask that you would make the song of our hearts and of our lives your song. The song of the redemption of sinners, the rescue of sinners like us for our good and for your glory. We pray all these things in great thankfulness for your son Jesus. Amen.